Lord, we thank you for every salvation. We thank you for every person that has decided within themselves to live in the fullness of your promises. And now, Lord, as we come to Jacob, help us understand how you are the God of Jacob. Help us really comprehend what it means, how you've dealt with him and how you can deal with us in the same way. So, Lord, quicken us, strengthen us, empower us, sharpen our minds, open our hearts. Lord, we come to hear from you. Remove all distraction, all frustration, all temptation in this moment and let your word come like a flood by the power of the Holy Spirit upon your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and here we are, Jacob. The first place we really hear of Jacob after his birth is found in your Bibles in Genesis chapter 25. I would encourage you to turn there. Genesis 25, beginning in verse 27. We get some interesting insight from this one little snippet of what happened after Rebekah gave birth to these twin boys. And it tells us here in Genesis 25, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is not the point of the message, but it's worth noting. We ended how Isaac's family experienced turmoil, but there's even more turmoil within the turmoil. We see from this verse alone that there is something called favoritism in this house. You have a father who favored one son, and you have a mother who favored another son. Isaac, as much as he was a man of faith, was also unfortunately a man of the flesh. You see that he is stirred by satisfying his appetite. And he loved his son Esau because he provided that satisfaction. And then you have the mother, Rebecca, loving Jacob. It doesn't tell us why, but it's, it's a safe conclusion to believe that she probably loved Jacob because of the call on his life. That he was the one that was to be served and would continue the promise. Nevertheless, it's not right. Whenever you see favoritism operating in a household in the scriptures, it never goes well. You see it, Jacob's family with his own kids. He does what he experienced, and he favors one son. How did that go with the boys? Didn't go too well. This introduction to these two guys doesn't give us much information. We kind of glance over that, but I want to focus on the first phrase. When the boys grew up. Why is that significant? It might not seem significant, unless you read the totality of Scripture and you see how the Holy Spirit chooses to describe other people's upbringings. And then you contrast them, and you see that there is a significant detail. Have you ever thought about Samuel, the prophet, and how the Bible describes his upbringing? I'll read it to you from 1 Samuel 2, 21. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew in the presence of God as a boy. And he continued to grow in the presence of God. Have you thought about John the Baptist? How he describes his upbringing. It tells us in Luke 1.80. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. He grew in spirit. And then the beloved Lord Jesus Christ himself. Fully God, fully man. And it tells us in Luke 2.40. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Interesting. Because I come to Jacob and Esau, and all I read is, when the boys grew up. The description of their upbringing deals merely with the physical. And we see different figures where it deals with their physical stature, but it also tells us at the same time that they grew in the spirit. And that's true when you see the scene right after this, how Esau and Jacob deal with this whole birthright issue. It wasn't spiritual to say the least. It was very fleshly on both parts. But that description of Jacob and Esau's growing up, it's not just a description of these two. Unfortunately, it describes many people in the household of God. 
There are many people in the household of God who grow in every other area except in their spirit. And so you have many people who, maybe from last year to this point, grew financially. You made a lot more money than you did last year. Or perhaps some people here grew socially. You made a lot more relationships. In fact, you probably found somebody that you can now call a potential wife or husband. You probably grew in some skill. You probably grew in some talent. But can I ask you a question? Has your soul been stretched? We celebrate outward growth. We talk about outward growth. We recognize outward growth. But I see some people in the Bible where the Holy Spirit highlights a different growth. And so here's a sobering question for all of us. It's not about how much you grew, because just like in physical growth, there are spurts where you really grow, and there are some other times where you steadily grow, and that's true in the spiritual as well. But here's a question for all of us. Do I recognize the growth in my soul? Do I see a steady increase of Jesus being formed in me and through me? Do I realize a greater love for the Master? Am I like Samuel who is growing in the presence of God? Am I like John the Baptist who is growing stronger in spirit? Am I like the Lord Jesus Christ who was wiser and wiser and wiser as time went on? I love conference for many reasons and here's one of them. When we eat out there and when we talk in fellowship, how you have conversations with different people and you can see the growth. They grew in the presence of God. They grew in the knowledge of God. They grew in their sensitivity to the Spirit of God. What does it mean to grow? Does it mean that you pray more, read more? Very small fraction. The Bible describes spirituality in very practical ways. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Goodness. These boys grew in many different ways, except in the most vital, and that is in the inward man. But what we learn here about Jacob's story is that it is beautiful in this that no matter how one fails to grow, even if it's a span of years, God can change you in a moment. That's what we realize about Jacob. When you see Jacob and Esau, they begin their lives terribly, both of them. Both of them were at the same place, operating in the flesh, not growing in anything but their own selfish desires. You have a man, Esau, who traded his birthright for a bowl of porridge in a moment because he said, I'm about to die. Isn't that how we act when, we act when we're tempted with sin? Uh, if I don't do this, then I'm going to die. I'm going to crumble. And then you have another man, Jacob, who operated in the flesh in another way. Give me, give me, give me, give me. But with Jacob and Esau, though they both started terribly, they both ended way differently. And that's the story of Jacob. That there is a difference between his start and his finish. In fact, people would say this. That Jacob, in comparison to Abraham and Isaac, is highlighted in the fact that he ended better than his fathers. If you compare their lives, you can see that Abraham and Isaac questionably ended more in a negative light than Jacob. And yet it is Jacob with the most dramatic rebellion displayed in the Bible in comparison to all three. So when you realize that, that he, he grew in a certain way, void of so much spirituality, how did he end so well? And we're going to talk about how he ended. And I make the case tonight that what happened between his start and his finish was two moments with God in between. Two crucial encounters with the living God that literally shifted the way he would grow and walk in his relationship with the Lord. Two encounters with God that is not recorded of Esau, 
who ended in one way that one might say very successful in the surface level, but not like Jacob. And I would confess that Jacob ended way richer than Esau ever was. What are these encounters? To be completely honest, they are encounters that every single person really needs for themselves if they need and want to grow in the relationship with the Lord. The first encounter is in Genesis 28. It's in verse 10, and it deals with Jacob in a place called Bethel. Genesis 28, verse 10, reads that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Jacob is not on vacation here. Jacob is not taking a tour. He's not backpacking. We have to read the chapters before to realize that Jacob had just finished deceiving his brother, deceiving his father, tricking them to the point where it's reached the boiling point of where his brother said, I can't wait to slit his throat. Mom steps on the scene and says, Jacob, go to your uncle, and I will call for you when his anger subsides. Do you realize that? Do you realize that the mother never sent somebody for Jacob? When you read the story, she never sends for Esau, for Jacob rather, that Esau's anger is finished. It never goes away, according to that truth, to some degree. So Jacob at this point is traveling in a wilderness, and it is the result of one thing, his own sin. His family was already broken, and all he did was added and contributed to the brokenness. Jacob was not just merely a victim of a broken home. Jacob also added to the chaos within the household. And what Jacob really did is prove where our sins and where our selfishness takes us. Jacob at one point was living in tents, cooking home-cooked meals, enjoying life to a certain extent. And what happened was his grabbing had brought him to a place where he is now in the Middle Eastern desert, laying on the cold sand and using a rock as a pillow. No pun intended, Jacob has hit rock bottom. Listen, this is a picture of where sin can take an individual. This is a picture of how, in the end, we will find ourselves again and again in a place that we never thought we would end up. And the language in verse 11 even adds to that. Look what it says very carefully. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. So physically, it got dark, it got cold, it got lonely. And it's speaking about the spiritual state of Jacob as well. No hope. Confused? Wondering what's next because of his own failure. And what happens here is quite remarkable because it is in this place, it is in this moment where he's about to have an encounter with God. It says in verse 12, and he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth or a staircase. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And this is what we have to understand. This is so beautiful. The God of Jacob is the God who makes himself known when we come to that place. This is when God chooses to step on the scene. When literally the man is at rock bottom. When he's literally putting his head on a rock. It's not comfortable. And the Lord comes on the scene to reveal himself. And this is true of every person. Listen, God showed up when we were at our worst. God showed up when we've come to a place in which we thought, how did I get to this point? And when the Lord reveals himself, he, he tells them a certain truth through this dream that is so universal concerning how we should understand God as well. This would literally shift Jacob's understanding of who God is and how he would relate and walk with the Lord. He realizes that there's a staircase and angels are ascending and descending on it and the Lord stood above it. So here's the first revelation that Jacob got. Surely, it was this. There is a connection between heaven and earth. Jacob realized that this world, this existence, this life, 
is beyond what we see in the physical. Everything about our existence here is only one side of a veil, brothers and sisters. There is another world on another side of a veil, and it is more real, and it impacts this side of the veil way more than we think. He sees angels ascending and descending, meaning there is interaction between the spiritual and the physical. And he has come to the point where he's known there is something more than this life. A man must come to that point as well, to a certain degree. Life is beyond this. Life is beyond this. Life is beyond all of this. There is an unseen realm that one day will become seen and perceived in ways in which you and I cannot know in our senses now. And I believe the devil is trying to do everything he can to make sure that people in this side of the veil don't believe that truth. Stimulates your senses. Distracts you. Keeps you away from thinking that there is a world beyond this point. We would be shocked to know, I'm sure, when we get to heaven to realize how much of the spiritual realm affected this side of the veil, both for evil and for good. But he had another connection. It wasn't just that there was a spiritual realm. He understood something because there is the Lord who stood above the ladder. Can you imagine what he saw? These angels coming up and down like escalators maybe. Then he sees God up there at the top. And the revelation he got wasn't just that there's this other realm. He realized that heaven and earth doesn't connect me just to another place. It connects to a person. The Lord stood above it. See, many people don't have an issue believing in a spiritual realm. There are many spiritists out there. There are many people who believe that there are other forces and there are influences and there's a higher power. But where people get annoyed, where people get bothered, and where people get angry is when you say that the other world is governed by the God of the Bible. But Jacob realized that there was God Almighty. And God Almighty reigns supreme. God Almighty reigns and governs. God Almighty is above angels. God Almighty is the influencer of all things in the universe. There is a God. And he's real. And he's powerful. But it doesn't just say that the Lord stood above it. It says that the Lord stood above it and said. So he's a God who communicates. He's a God who speaks to a person. He's a God who longs to reveal himself to me. And he's a God who wants to make a covenant. He wants to establish a lifelong, eternal relationship with mere mortals. Jacob is at that place in Bethel right here, right now, in the pit of sin. And what Jacob realized is not just for Jacob. What Jacob realized is exactly what Jesus gave insight into when he spoke to Nathanael. He says in John 1.51 to Nathanael, And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man. So you know what Jesus is saying? He's alluding to this story, but he gives us the prophetic insight. Jacob saw a ladder, but that ladder was really a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And what that means is this. Yes, there's a connection between heaven and earth, and yes, there's a God at the top in heaven, but the connection between an unholy man and a holy God is a holy God named Jesus Christ. That for me to be able to speak back to this God, I need to first climb upon Christ and grip myself to Christ and hold on to Christ in order for me to have that kind of a relationship. Everything about what Jacob experienced was gospel truth. There is a heaven and there is a God in heaven. But in order for you and I to reach that, we have to come to Jesus and Jacob had this encounter. Some of you had that encounter last night. Some of you had this encounter two years ago, five years ago. I believe this was the turning point in Jacob's life concerning his initial relationship with the Lord. So have you been to Bethel yet? Have you been there? Have you come to this revelation? Look how Jacob reacts in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. 
And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob comes to a realization where he was unaware of the presence of God, unaware of the reality of God, unaware of the fact that this God longs to make a covenant. And now he has stepped into that reality and goes, oh man, God is real. God is true. I thought this life was all about here, but there's a God out there that wants to relate to me. Have you been to Bethel? Have you come to that place? Have you reacted to the gospel in such a way? I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I can remember, I can remember what it was like to be saved. I don't remember the day, but that doesn't matter. I don't need to remember when I was physically born, do I? I just know that I'm alive. And I can't tell you the minute or the hour. I can't tell you in the front of my Bible that I heard this message and it was at this time where everything changed. I can't tell you that, but I can tell you what it was like to realize, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. Oh, you wake up and you look out and you realize, man, the birds sound so good. I didn't know the grass was that green. I didn't know the air can be so crisp. What was I listening to? iTunes, list, delete, trash can. Hillsong, come on, bring it on. New appetite for my ears. Oh my gosh, this actually speaks to me. I'm not... I'm not bored by this. I, I'm read, I actually want to read another chapter. Why does, it, why does it satisfy me when I read this? Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And look at the transformation in Jacob even in this moment. Do you believe that Jacob was walking up with his puffed chest saying, Oh, they kicked me out of the house. Forget that. I'm going to walk my life my own way. Absolutely not. The man was terrified of Esau. You see that later on in his life. When he hears that Esau is coming, the guy was trembling. So he left for a reason. He left because he was scared of his brother. And so we see a fearful Esau. We see a, a, a doubting uh, Jacob, rather. We see a man who is walking, not knowing what's going to happen next. And all for a sudden, the moment he encounters God, all that fear, all that anxiety, all that worry is now replaced with an awesome sense of the reality of the goodness of God. He says, how awesome is this place. All of those things now are swallowed up by the reality of gospel truth. Have you been to Bethel? Have you had that encounter with Christ? Have you come to that place? You said, brother, you preached on this yesterday, but it doesn't mean everybody answered yesterday. You have to come to that place or else the next point is not going to make any sense. You can't begin your relationship with God. Do you know how many people are trying? Listen, very carefully. Listen, listen, I know. We're all tired here, but listen. Do you know how many people are trying to apply biblical principles and they're not even born again? So many people are trying to apply biblical moral truth. And they, they, they don't know how they don't have power over and they lose interest in a moment because they haven't had this experience yet. They don't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. You'd be shocked and amazed to know how many people you talk to that are asking for help in certain things. And I love to ask this question, when were you saved? And you'd be shocked to know where people go, I don't know. So you haven't come to the place where you said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it? Have you encountered Christ in this way yet? I'm not saying that all cycles and all failures is due to the reality that somebody's not born again, but it's part of it. And it's true in some situations. Some people have not made the first step. They haven't gone to Bethel yet, and they're trying to apply Bible to something that the Holy Spirit empowers you to walk in. And so he makes this relationship with the Lord. Look what he does. So early in the morning, verse 18, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. So the next day, he wakes up really early, and he takes his rock pillow, and he goes, I'm putting oil on this. He anoints it, and he looks at the place. He goes, what's the name of this place? I saw the sign. Luz? No, from this moment on, this place is called Bethel. 
And here's the principle. When you encounter Christ this way, your perception on everything changes. Rock? No. Pillow? No. Pillar. Luz? No. Bethel. Your outlook on everything is transformed when you become born again. And not only that, he, he puts this rock and he, he anoints it and sets it up as a pillar because the second principle to this is that when you truly encounter this, you want to publicly testify about it. This pillar was a statement, I have met the God of the universe in this place and I want to declare it to anybody who would come by this place and see this pillar, they will realize that this is God's house and I am God's man. This is the first encounter that Jacob had at Bethel. But when you realize how many chapters are left of Jacob, you realize something. That Jacob still had some Jacob in him. That as much as he had made that first step, beautiful, necessary, absolutely true and profound. But there was a second encounter that Jacob had even in his relationship with the Lord, that would transform his relationship with the Lord. And I want to say this statement right here. A lot of believers have been to Bethel, but there are very few that have been to Peniel. Very few. And so we come to Genesis 32, and we see Jacob's second encounter. Significant encounter, to say the least. And what happens here? We see here that Jacob, even though he made a vow to live for God, still had some flesh in him. And we understand Jacob's name, don't we not? It's not just deceiver, it's heel grabber. Listen, Jacob has been grabbing heels before he was even born. In the womb, he's grabbing a heel. That's how he got his name. Even before he came into existence, he's grabbing. Somebody made this simple illustration before. I heard it and I thought it was kind of cute in, as a picture. Then when you put out your finger to a baby's hand, what does the baby do? He grabs it. We're born grabbers. Grabby, grabby, grabby. Grab your heel. Birthright, grab it. Blessing, give it to me. I want it for me. He had a very strong will, Jacob. I mean, you read that with his relationship with his father-in-law. The guy just, he was like a slitterly snake. He just, you want to deceive me? I'm going to deceive you. He was very, 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 very committed. He gets, he wants a wife, seven years to wait. Does it. Wrong wife, tricks him. I'll wait another seven years. Fourteen years. So the man is clearly strong-willed. And now he comes to a place in which he's about to encounter God in a very significant way. Because God is going to deal with that. And what's true in Jacob is true in us. God wants to deal with that part of who we are. Self-reliance, selfishness, pride, my will, my way, my desires, my plans. Jesus said it clearly. We heard it so much this weekend. He didn't say, take up your cross and crucify Satan. He says, take up your cross, your cross, and you follow me daily. He could have said Satan, but Satan isn't our main issue. Guess what is? It's me. What is God going to do to Jacob in this second encounter? Break him. Break him. Oh, I know this isn't popular. We love to hear about blessing and God wants to bless, but we really hear about God wanting to break us. But in the breaking, there is blessing. It's not just to break us, it's not just to shatter us, it's not just to humiliate us, it's in the brokenness where there is multiplication. Another person made this illustration that Jesus had to break the bread before he could multiply it. And that principle of brokenness is true in our lives. There's something that needs to be taken, removed, shifted, altered before something else can come out of us. And I'm telling you, please hear me. Many people have been to Bethel. They have not been to Peniel. 
What do I mean by brokenness? I mean this, for God to do a work in our hearts in such a way where we are content to be fully dependent upon him in all our matters. And we are satisfied to surrender to him all things. That's brokenness. And God knew that if Jacob was going to be the man that he wanted him to be, he first needed to do something to the man. And perhaps he chiseled some parts out of Jacob. You know how he chiseled some parts, I believe? Through his uncle Laban. I've said this in Bible study before, that it's amazing how the Bible uses father-in-laws as a means to sanctify. And so we see here that he has been chiseled to some degree. He got a taste of his own medicine, of what deception tastes like. Here's a spoon of your own medicine, Jacob. You want to see what, what it's like to deceive? You be deceived. And he got that sour taste, but yet there was still work that needed to be done. And now what he's about to do, listen, is so break him, as you know the story of Jacob, that he's literally, like it's going to manifest physically. He's going to walk in a new way. And he would never walk the same again. How did Jacob come to that point where God broke him in a way it changed his walk? And it didn't just change his walk in which he limped. You see Jacob treating people differently after this encounter. You see Jacob doing things differently after this moment. It was a significant encounter with the Lord that brought him to this place where it took him from here to here in his walk with God. And so here's some principles. I'm not going to keep you too long. But I see something in here that is vital. In verse 24, we read something. Let's read from verse 22 rather. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Jacob was left alone. And I want to see these as steps, because Jacob here proves to us, as God steps into the scene once he's left alone, that there is an importance for God to do a work on us in isolation with God. He didn't come when his family was around him. He didn't come when he was having dinner. He didn't come when he was hanging. No, it was when Jacob put everything aside. You know why he was doing that? We don't really know, but we know he's very distressed. Esau is about to come and meet with them, and he is terrified. The verses earlier, he prays to God, and this night he can't sleep clearly, so he moves everybody out, and here he is, again, alone in the wilderness. You can imagine the crickets. And you can imagine as he's pacing back and forth, wondering how God's going to solve this if God heard his prayer. And it's amazing that we pray for certain things and God has a different agenda in mind. Left alone. This is the first step, I believe. Many people cannot see God do a work in them because they don't know how to get alone. We're so busy. We're so distracted. We're, I mean, these things called cell phones, I love them. I, I, I thank God for them. But it's like the world is in your pocket. And there's something in aloneness that God delights in. There's something of distraction-free. There's something about what God wants to do with you so significantly where you can talk to him and he can speak to you in a way that nobody else needs to see or hear. There's a work that needs to be done, but it comes when we meet with our Father in heaven, as Jesus said. And where are you going to find him? In your room with the door shut. Jacob was left alone. And... This is amazing because he's about to be changed only when he gave and he had full attention. And what we read here is the moment he was left alone, what happened? And a man wrestled with him. A man wrestled with him. Notice that it didn't say that Jacob wrestled with a man. We often use this text to teach on prayer. Get alone with God and wrestle God until you get your blessing. Jacob wasn't wrestling with God. God was wrestling with Jacob. He saw him alone, and God says, ah, I got him where I want him. And he steps on the scene, and he grabs a hold of Jacob. See, many people have understood their Christian life as this. I live my life, and whenever I need something from God, I will come to God. Whenever I ask something, I will come to God, and he will give it. But do we often think of this dimension 
that a big part, if not all of the part of the Christian walk is God getting something out of us. God pulling something out of us. God molding us into something. God shaping us, shifting us. Jacob had a desire from God, but God had a desire for Jacob. And he steps on the scene and he begins to wrestle him. You'd be amazed to know how God will meet with you. Listen very carefully when you give him your time. When you give him a distraction-free segment of your day. I realize we're busy. I realize these things are, are difficult for more people than others. I am not going to push some legalistic understanding that if you're not a monk, that God can't use you or speak to you. But give him what you can give him and see what he'll give you. He was left alone. That's crucial. But it wasn't just that. Jacob was willing to be changed. He was exposed to change. When he was wrestling with this man, God didn't overthrow him. You know, this was God. Hosea tells us this was God. God could have in a moment said, and got rid of him. But he's wrestling with him. And have you ever thought, has anybody in here ever wrestled? It is exhausting. Two minutes of it, I'm out of breath. I realized that earlier today, running around a little bit, I realized how old I'm getting. Out of breath, so quickly. And there's something about grappling with another person where, but Jacob does it all night. Jacob does it all night. And you go, how can a mere man do so? You know what that really tells us something about Jacob? Again, something about his stubborn nature. And it speaks about our stubbornness. How many times have we wrestled with God on something and we wouldn't let go until we had our way? No God, no God, no God, no God, no God. And we go, Jacob, how do you do it all night? We've done it for months and years. So he's wrestling with God all night to have his way to some certain degree. It, it displays something of his own strength. And God says, I'm about to change that. So what does he do? Well, it shows us that this was surely God because he touches his hip. And when he touches his hip socket, the muscle that supplies strength and stability, it was moved out of place. And guess what? I'm sure it didn't feel good. Many people can make the first step and be alone, but have trouble with the second step because they don't want God to touch them in a way where they remove something that they've been dependent upon for so long. Something that they found so much security in, strength in, other than him. Especially when it's our will and our desires. But if we want to see God do a work in and through us, we have to be willing to expose ourselves for God to put his hand on something and remove it, as painful as it might be. That could look different for every single person. You would be amazed to know what God will put his finger on and say, you've put too much trust in this. I want you to put it on me. We're going to see how this happens. So are you and I willing? Listen, this is where it gets really scary, I know, but it's really good. Are you and I willing to get before God and say, Lord, whatever you need to remove, do it. He'll do it. Oftentimes people make requests. Oftentimes people express frustration. Oftentimes people express, why, isn't thing, why aren't things going my way? Why isn't God doing this and doing that? And I'd love to ask this question. Is your heart fully set on doing what God wants to do in and through you? And I love the honesty of people because I've heard many times people say, to be honest, I don't really want to do it God's way. Because we have this idea that God has a plan B. We have the plan A. We have the best. He has kind of the best. And God says, until you're convinced, until you're willing for me to come and touch a part of you that you don't want touch, remove from you your hip socket, we can't move on. We can't move on. I'm telling you, listen, we're not talking about Bethel. We're talking about Peniel. We're talking about going from here to here in our relationship with God. Lord, remove from me whatever you need to remove from me. And this is what we see next. Verse 26. Jacob showed determination. For the longest time, Jacob proved to be a determined person, but for the wrong things. He grabbed and held on to things to get it his own way, in his own timing, by his own will. But now Jacob learned a beautiful lesson. It's not wrong to be determined. Just be determined for the right thing. And Jacob now is holding on to God after his hip socket, not in pride, 
not in stubbornness, but in total dependence and brokenness before God. God wants us to be determined. God wants us to be bold in a holy way before him. But guess what? We have to do so once we realize that we can't do it ourselves. Let me read this from Hosea 12.4. It speaks about Jacob. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept. He wept and sought his favor. Picture Jacob. Hip out of place, holding on to God, weeping, seeking his favor. That looks like a broken man to me. That looks like a desperate, determined man. This is probably one of the hardest things, and that's determination. Being willing to seek God on a certain issue in my life and proving to him, Lord, I am determined to seek you. And that's what he says. I won't let you go until you bless me. And lastly, as we close in a moment, Jacob confessed before God. Verse 27 tells us that the Lord looks at him and he says, what is your name? We know this, don't we? Can you imagine that? He's weeping. He's crying. He's broken, hip out of place. And the Lord says, what is your name? What is your name? As they're wrestling. And the last time Jacob was asked this question was by his father Isaac. When Jacob deceived his father, it was when his father was so blind he couldn't see. Unfortunately, he was spiritual too. And Jacob comes with hair on his arms from an animal. And he asks, who are you? And you know what he says? I'm Esau. More than once, I'm Esau. Let me put a mask I'm not really a heel grabber. I'm not really a deceiver. I'm somebody else. And before the Lord can do this final work in him and declare him a new identity, he had to make this final step. I'm Jacob. What's your name? I'm Jacob. Who are you really? Lord, if I'm really honest before you, I love the praise of man. If I'm really honest before you, I love to have my own way. I love to grab. That's what I am. I love to trick people for my own desire. Do you think he said that in like boasting? The man was weeping and seeking his favor. So as he's weeping and seeking his favor, the Lord says, what's your name? And he's weeping and he's saying, I'm Jacob. And God says, that's all I needed. You're Israel. See, unless you and I are willing to come to the light before God, you know what I find fascinating? God sees everything anyway. Why don't we just tell him the truth? Because it's a test of our pride and it's a test of our willingness to be honest before him. And so he asked, not because he didn't know Jacob's name. He wanted Jacob to know Jacob's name. He wanted Jacob to come to that realization. He wanted Jacob to confess and be broken before God with his own mouth. And that was the turning point. So when you mix these ingredients of, oh, I'm alone. And I'm going to confess. And I'm going to be real before God. That's when God can do something real in us. He changes the name to Israel. You know what, what Israel really means? God prevails. God prevails. And that's the very work that God wanted to do in Jacob, and he gave him a name for it. You no longer prevail. It's no longer about you. It's not about your life. It's not about this. Now it's about me reigning over you completely. I prevail. You're Israel. And what do we see in verse 31? This is so awesome. What do we read in Bethel? The sun set. What do we see in verse 31? The sun rose upon him. The sun rose upon him. It's a new day for a new man. But I thought he was new at Bethel. Yeah, but there was a newness within the newness. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Can you imagine that? 
I love to visualize these things sometimes. I love to sit down and just imagine on the horizon, you see the sun coming up, and you see frail, broken Jacob, now Israel, limping back to his tent. Do you think his family said he probably has a muscle ache? I'm sure his family asked, what happened to you? Because see, when God really touches you, people will see it. You don't have to tell people. You can't testify, sure. But they'll see it in the walk. You love more. You're selfless. You're patient. What happened to you? I knew you were a Christian, but what happened to you in your walk with God? I met him. And he changed the way I walked. How did Jacob end his life? You ready for this? I love this verse. I love when the Bible gives more answers to the Bible. Can we put up Hebrews 11, 21? By faith, Jacob, when dying, what happened? Blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Did you see that? The picture there is when he was dying, by faith, Here's Jacob with a staff. You realize he has a staff because he was limping his whole life, right? That staff was a memorial that he would never, ever, ever depend upon himself again. He would depend upon God the rest of his days. And he has this staff, and he's leaning upon the staff, worshiping God. That's how he dies. Totally different Jacob. I mean, we just read about the Jacob that tricked and tricked, all these things. And now the Bible tells us he is leaning on his staff, worshiping. And it says he blessed his son. See, Jacob began his life taking from people. He ended his life by giving to people. Jacob began his life as a grabber. He ended his life as a blesser. Jacob lived most of his life relying on self. He ended his life leaning on his staff. It doesn't matter what you've missed in your life and how much time you've wasted in your relationship with the Lord. God wants to do a work in us, a deeper work in us. See, salvation is one thing, but Jesus doesn't want us to just go to heaven with him. Jesus wants to make Jesus in you and in me. Many people have met God at Bethel, but have not positioned themselves for God to meet them in Peniel. As I said earlier, and I'm closing for sure. Before this encounter with God, Jacob had this huge prayer request. God, please do something with this whole Esau situation. God, please do something with this whole thing that I'm going to be killed. And he's so focused on this genuine, sincere concern. And it amazes me that when God answers, he doesn't solve the Esau problem because the problem wasn't with Esau. The problem was with Jacob. See, oftentimes we look out to the world and we look at how different things are operating. We go, Lord, fix that, fix that, fix that. And God, in his wisdom, says, I can, but really the solution is when I fix you. Let me give you a new walk. Let me give you a new outlook. Let me give you a new vision. Let me give you a new understanding of what this is about. Let me break you. Because I can deal with the Esau situation, but if I deal with the Esau situation, I don't deal with you, another Esau situation will come up. Let's deal with you, Jacob. And Jacob receives that, and when Jacob receives that, sure enough, he blesses his sons. And he's limping, and he has a staff, and he ends his life in worship. I want to say this at the end of this conference. I praise God how every year we get to see each other, but there is a time coming when you and I will come to an end. I mean physically. I mean with this life. As much as Maranatha is glorious, I pray that it goes on until Jesus comes back. There is a time in which you and I will meet Jesus. I see how Jacob ended. And I go, Lord, listen, I want to end blessing people and I want to end worshiping you. That's it. Lord, whatever you need to do in my life, whatever you need to break in me, Whatever you need to remove from me, Lord, it doesn't matter how I started. It doesn't matter how much I've messed up. Jacob was the most messed up out of all three. But Lord, 
Let me finish. Let me, let me finish leaning upon you, worshiping you, and blessing whoever I can bless in my hand's reach. Do that work in me. It doesn't happen at Bethel. It happens at Peniel. You're saying, what are you talking about? You're speaking in code. I'm saying this. There's a point in our relationship with the Lord where we have to go from just rejoicing in salvation, as glorious as that is, and we need to do that, to really asking God to do a deeper work in us so we can live this thing out in reality. And that we can live out blessing, and not just living in a covenant with God and still living kind of like Jacob. See, Jacob met God at Bethel, but he was still acting like Jacob to some degree. He changed a little bit, but God says, I'm not satisfied with this. I need to shatter you. But you will be a blessing out of that. And you will know that it was worth it. What does it take? Well, I said it. Get with God. I'm not going to say it's going to happen right away. I wish it would. Find time with the Lord. Be honest before the Lord. Ask God to do that work, and you would be shocked to know what he will uproot, and you would be shocked to know how he'll change the way you walk. As you leave this conference tomorrow, make that your ambition between now and next year. And here's our prayer, that when you come back, you'll have a limp. And you won't have to tell anybody. I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today, and I couldn't help myself but look at that person and say, I've seen you here quite a few times. You're different, man. It's clear that God has done something in you. You're talking different. The subjects of your conversation are different. There's a joy in you. There's a delight in the things of God. God wants to do that in all of us. Can we pray? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word in our hearts. Now we just take the time to say, God, whatever you need to do in me, I want to walk different. I want to end blessing people, and I want to end worshiping you. That's how I want to end, Lord. That's how I want to live, and that's how I want to end. Give me a staff. <laughs>